Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Welcome, George and Eric. This is Patrick Stanley from Blockstack. Thanks, guys, for joining. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. No problem. Why don't you guys spend uh, spend like a, a little bit of time kind of explaining for the listeners out there, who are you? Maybe we'll start with Eric and then with George. Sure. So I'm a uh, Silicon Valley-based entrepreneur and investor. Uh, we helped uh, start and was early at a few companies, one of which was uh, Product Hunt, which sold to, to AngelList. Uh, and I've since started a venture capital firm with a few other people called Village Global, which is a $100 million early stage venture firm. Uh, and I also helped incubate a company called Token Daily, which is a crypto media company and pretty soon a crypto fund. That brought me to the works of, uh, of George Gilder and, and the work that you do at Blockstack uh, in the last few months. And so I'm excited to be uh, ch- chatting with both of you and to go deep on some of, uh, some of George's ideas. Thanks for coming on. And George? I think Blockstack is making a critical contribution. It is defining what kinds of activities should be assigned to blockchains and what kinds of activities should be allowed to scale across the internet. And I think there's been a tendency to exaggerate the real powers of the blockchains for processing and for conducting complex computations and not enough stress on the limited control plane functions that only blockchains can actually ensure. And I I devoted two chapters of my book, Life After Google, to Blockstack because I so liked uh, the elegance of their design. Life After Google has been the number one cryptocurrency book on Amazon pretty much since it came out last July. Awesome. Well, thanks for the introduction. You talk a lot about information theory, and I wanted to kind of give our listeners a bit of a background on your outlook on information theory and how it applies to things like economic theory and even what you call the cryptocosm. Well, information theory, uh, as launched by Claude Shannon, is a climax of a long process that began with Leibniz, perhaps, and moved through Kurt Gödel's incompleteness theory and Turing's universal computer. All this is a stream that I believe is best defined as information theory. And a biologist named Hubert Yaki, working with George Gamow, who was moving into biology at the time as the conceiver of the code of biology, showed how information theory also governs the key uh, biological theory of bioinformatics and uh, DNA and and is thus central to all the great sciences of this era. And my insight was that uh, creativity always comes as a surprise to us. That's why it's significant. If we didn't need it, as, as the Princeton economist Hirschman declared, complete planning and determinism would work in economics. But creativity always comes as a surprise to us. 
And Claude Shannon defined his information theory as entropy, measuring the surprisal in any particular message. So this seemed to me to offer a possibility of converging information theory with economic theory around the creativity of surprisal, the unexpected inventions and innovations that drive all economic growth. And since then, I've been developing the information theory of economics. Yeah, a couple. So one is that, you know, the book is called Knowledge and Power. What you're trying to do is, is align uh, knowledge and power. Can you, can you unpack exactly what you mean by that? And what are the biggest implications there? DNA and uh, the information in the human genetic code has been shown to be another code, uh, analogous and closely uh, parallel to the codes of computer science. And information theory integrates these two sciences. Shannon, Claude Shannon, the inventor of information theory, really, who quantified it and, and translated it into computer science and communication systems, wrote one of his theses on uh, the biological implications. And Hubert Yaki developed these biological implications in detail in several books. And these together seem to me to afford an avenue for applying information theory to economics. For Shannon, information theory was kind of the inverse of cryptographic theory. So information theory and cryptography are both integrated sciences and uh, are the obverse of, of each other. And uh, information theory in uh, cryptography is the basis for uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchains and block stacks and all these new uh, opportunities in the world economy. Uh, and I could be misunderstanding. When I, when I thought you, uh, you, you spoke about aligning knowledge and power, it's making sure that the, the people who have the knowledge also have the power to use their resources, basically that the people who make money also have the power to use it to make more money and more economic growth. How would you sort of rephrase your... I, I don't align knowledge and power. I say there are two different ways of seeing the world and uh, seeing capitalism and seeing uh, economic activity. I believe wealth is really knowledge. And uh, we can understand that when we realize that the Neanderthal in his cave had all the physical resources we have today. The difference between our age and the Stone Age is entirely the growth of knowledge. And the growth of knowledge can also be translated into the growth of learning. Learning is the growth of knowledge. But learning fits with information theory because learning is finding out things you don't know already and thus corresponds directly to Shannon's definition of information as unexpected bits measured by their surprisal. So I believe that all these various fields can converge in an information theory of economics. And I believe the great Achilles heel of uh, the 
world economy today is the eclipse of money. Money has been turned into an, from an instrument of knowledge, a measuring stick that gauges wealth into an instrument of power of governments uh, that tries to force economic growth by guaranteeing it. And according to Karl Popper, all learning processes depend on finding out things you don't already know. And that entails falsifiable propositions, propositions that can be refuted. That's crucial to the scientific method. And I believe the reason capitalism succeeds is it incorporates the scientific method into its basic processes, focusing on knowledge rather than power. The growth of knowledge depends on business plans that are not guaranteed, business plans that can go broke, business plans that can fail. And that's the heart of the learning processes of capitalism. Got it. And I have kind of a a question on like the leap uh, you've made from going from information theory to economic theory. What sort of gives you the confidence that information theory can be applied sort of liberally uh, outside of the realm of computers and and other domains that it kind of was originated in? Like why, like how are, how are you confident that it applies to economics in the way that you are? Money is not, or it shouldn't be an instrument of, power. Money is really a measuring stick. It measures wealth. It isn't wealth itself. And that confusion, the idea that money is wealth, has been one of the great pitfalls of economic policy for centuries. All kings and tyrants and overreaching governments and central banks all want to convert money into power, money into wealth itself. But money is just a measuring stick of wealth. It gauges wealth. And uh, wealth itself is knowledge. And knowledge comes from experiments that can go wrong, from experiments that are not controlled, that are not uh, guaranteed. And, And that's what differentiates a capitalist business from a government plan. A capitalist business can be refuted by the marketplace, by the voluntary decisions of customers. A business plan will succeed or fail. Enterprise is an information process rather than chiefly an incentive process. Mark Zuckerberg does not need $70 billion or whatever in order to motivate him to go to work. That is not the reason for the distributions of capitalism. Mark Zuckerberg has those billions, not because so he can spend them, but because he's they're invested. He's invested them. And and his best judgment based on his calculation of knowledge of his his knowledge of the marketplace and of the technology the technologies that he's mastered. That's pretty radical. So it's not an incentive system, it's an information system. And this is crucial because if you think it's an incentive system, you imagine that 
greed has something to do with it. That Mark Zuckerberg uh, is uh, running Facebook because he's greedier than other people at Facebook. That strikes me as a, a kind of ridiculous theory of capitalism. Right. Well, there's also this debate of whether, you know, how much of uh, economic growth or innovation comes from, you know, human agency, you know, Ayn Rand's or great man theory versus sort of, you know, we all products of our environment. And if you think it's an incentive system, you can, you know, maybe change an interest rate here or, or have a little bit of government spending here. You sort of tinker with some of the tools and you can incentivize innovation. Well, and I see you coming hard on the, on the human agency side. And I think there's a broader question of like today, you know, a lot of sort of our current economic paradigm believes that sort of the information relies that technocrats have the information. You think that the entrepreneur or sorry, knowledge, you think the entrepreneur has the knowledge. Arnold Kling thinks that there's this sort of broader market system that, that has the knowledge that is neither the entrepreneur nor the technocrats. I'm curious where you would disagree with, with him uh, or, or why that's incorrect in your view. There's a great, effort throughout the history of economics to eliminate creativity from the economic model. It really started with Adam Smith, of all things. He imagined that an economy is a great machine, unquote, with every gear and cog perfectly gauged to perform its function. In other words, Adam Smith was trying to imitate the great machine model of the universe that Isaac Newton had launched a hundred years earlier. This is an error, and it's proven to be an error by the basic principles of information theory that show that all information is really unexpected. It's the surprising outcomes not the determined outcomes that, by definition, are predictable. Uh, and this effort, to, I think Paul Romer uh, just received the Nobel Prize for his theory of entrepreneurship. And I believe it's a somewhat limited theory of entrepreneurship that tries to make the entrepreneur a function of the material environment. He defines the entrepreneur as a reassembler of chemical elements. And this gives him a lot of degrees of freedom, but it at the same time renders him a function of chemistry and physics. And I believe that uh, entrepreneurial creativity transcends chemistry and physics. It's the level of consciousness, freedom, imagination, and falsifiability, all these critical elements in a real entrepreneurial economy that can't be reduced to a flat universe theory of chemistry and physics, materialism. From the information theoretical uh, economic view, you really put creativity and the entrepreneur as central to the whole system. What I'm curious to know is if we're exiting the world of sort of like supply and demand curves and measuring these things and trying to predict into the future, what are we entering into the world of when it comes to trying to measure or make a science of this like sort of um, entrepreneurial creativity and surprise? Well, supply and demand curves are derivative and they exist and economics has been very valuable in exploring, in exploring all their ramifications. But supply and demand curves alone 
uh, do not suffice if you don't have a measuring stick, if you don't have a gauge, you don't have a way of defining the values, the information that guides entrepreneurial creativity. And I believe that money is the crucial measuring stick and that money is what remains that uh, money is ultimately based on time. Time is what remains scarce when everything else in the economy grows abundant. Time is really money, and money is time. And uh, when governments try to uh, nullify money or make money a manipulable facet of sovereignty. They always try to manipulate interest rates. They've, for the last 10 years, there have been zero interest rates on average and often minus interest rates adjusted for inflation. In other words, they're, tr- they're in a great rebellion against time, but time is inexorable. It's necessarily manifested in economics through uh, the measuring stick of money. Got it. And so in through that lens, you would say essentially like a sound money, like gold, for example, would be one that incorporates an element of time and sort of um, capital intensive activities surrounding, you know, the mining of gold. And then you also have, you know, sort of parallels there in, in Bitcoin and proof of work, right? That's right. Um, however, a crucial point, and uh, I do criticize Bitcoin and life after Google because it it's capped. It kind of cuts off time a hundred years from now. It's uh, based on the assumption that uh, of Satoshi that gold uh, runs out. That somehow gold is a resource that. Uh, diminishes as time passes and ultimately reaches zero. And uh, I think that was the great misconception about Bitcoin. Bitcoin tried to mimic gold. That was what Satoshi thought he was doing, was mimicking gold. But in fact, he made the great error that, uh, that so many people make, that imagine that physical resources run out. The whole, the reason gold measures time is because throughout history, as technology and capital has been applied to mining gold, proportionately the gold became more difficult to mine from deeper loads, from more attenuated deposits. So today we contemplate mining gold from the oceans, mining gold from meteors, mining gold from Slag heaps, mining gold from uh, the universe. It's it's really uh, the reason gold is time is because it's time to extract is scarcely changed in hundreds of years. Well, you know the dollar has dropped ninety seven percent in value in the last hundred years. Right. So what do you what do you um, expect to happen post like let's just say we're living in a year like you know twenty two hundred and. Yeah, there's no longer new bitcoins being minted. I I think that I think we're in the midst of a huge entrepreneurial experiment comprising thousands of different initiatives that ultimately are going to arrive on a time constant for money. 
and that, uh, you know, time prices will prevail and that uh, a real new digital gold that's better than gold because gold doesn't work well for immediate transactions. Gold has various physical complexities, but a real digital gold is going to emerge. I don't know precisely who's going to define it, but as soon as it happens, it will once again prevail as gold prevailed. This whole idea that money is an instrument of sovereignty was not true until 1971. We had uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of essentially a single world money. And 200 years of the British Empire based on Newton's definition of the value of gold never changed. Interest rates never went above 3%. Inflation scarcely existed. This was the the realm of the gold standard. And then... Uh, how much How much do you think the uh, British Empire benefited from Newton spending that time kind of making sure there was uh, a very well calculated gold standard like to, to what extent do you think that impact I, th- I think that was the foundation of the British Empire. I think that you know Britain was a small island country with no uh, particular advantages. The financial center was Amsterdam uh, they had a mixed gold and silver standard that was confusing and failed to yield a solid measuring stick. And Newton defined gold as a particular value and then proceeded for 30 years as master of the mint in Britain to test gold, to assure that it couldn't be hacked. He showed that You could not make gold out of any inferior elements. And so he really proved that gold was a suitable form of money, and and it lasted for 200 years. I I think that this was Newton's greatest accomplishment, probably is possibly even greater than Principia, although that's, that's debatable. But I think Newton, between the two, both establishing physics on an empirical basis and establishing money as a specific value of gold fueled both the Industrial Revolution and the, the British Empire. And now I think the first time we've really had a chance for new Newtons to emerge is now with, with the cryptocurrency movement. And Satoshi made a wonderful first draft of a potential new monetary standard that, that identifies money as an essential immutable scarcity rather than some kind of manipulable instrument of government power. Money as a source of knowledge for entrepreneurs about all the prices across the marketplace rather than an instrument of power for governments who want to manipulate their populations. Hmm. But presumably Bitcoin could act as a pretty good measuring stick for, let's say, like 100 years or so, right, in your opinion? Maybe. I, I think Bitcoin is fragmenting into various forms, and and it's. Uh, I think it's it's showing 
that it is not uh, precisely the right definition. I think the blockchain, as it's improved, particularly the block stack version of the blockchain, which um, focuses on the measuring stick properties of the blockchain rather than its uh, processing and manipulative uh, portions, programmable portions, I think this is uh, uh, the great contribution of Blockstack. Blockstack sort of is a really good word because it, it's the bottom of the stack. It's a low entropy carrier for all the high entropy creativity that's built on top of it. One sort of critique of the sort of entrepreneur centric view is that some, you know, for example, as a venture capitalist, some people say it's, it's all about market uh, rather than entrepreneurs, that some markets are sort of destined to, to happen or just riding the, the trends. The entrepreneurs are just riding the trends in, in certain cases. And the, the implication there is that if this entrepreneur didn't fill a market need, another would. Um, that there's some sense, not replaceable, but not entirely, you know, uh, dependent on them. Why do you push back on this view or why is it incorrect in your view? What's a market? Adam Smith said that the division of labor is dependent on the extent of the market. That is, the division of labor was his term for entrepreneurial creativity. He hadn't fully defined it yet. He didn't understand its relation to the scientific method. So he he didn't fully grasp uh, the information theory. But he did see, essentially, that entrepreneurship crucial as the division of labor, that is cutting down specializations into ever smaller components and thus yielding ever-increasing productivity, as he defined in his pin factory. But I believe that his essential insight is true once the market exists. But how does the market come to be? My thesis is entrepreneurial creativity and the division and the division of labor are dependent on the extent of knowledge and enterprise. The entrepreneurs create the market. There's no market until the entrepreneur launches the first attractive good that other people want to exchange value for. Uh, the the market is a product of enterprise, not a function of enterprise. Not, not uh, enterprise isn't a function of the market. The one example of this that I feel like rings true is the size of the taxicab industry before Uber came into existence, which expanded it. Um, I think I, I, at least by yeah. quintuple, and that was through the rise, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants, of course, like the rise of mobile and using like um, sort of geo geo-specific. Um, yeah, all that. That's a good example. Uh, thank you for it. Yeah, you're welcome, George. How else do you think you, your view of the economy has shaped when you put your venture capitalist hat on? How, how do you think you invest differently than perhaps other venture capitalists who are, who are not steeped in this view? Well, I, I tend to be too far ahead. My companies tend to remain illiquid for long periods of time. I focus on fundamental innovations. I believe that uh, fundamental innovations ultimately prevail. And through my career, I focused in 1980 on the microchip and on 
Intel and Micron Technologies and Applied Materials. In the 90s, I focused on fiber optics and the potential for ubiquitous wireless. I, I said that the computer of the future would be as portable as your watch, as personal as your wallet. It would recognize speech. It would navigate streets. It would collect your news and your mail. It just might not do windows, I said, back between 1990 and 94. I can't remember just when all this I said, but my book, Life After Television, was bought and distributed by uh, Steve Jobs. I, I believe I had some influence on the emergence of the smartphone. And uh, since then, I saw that the big innovation, the real fundamental innovation is cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies address the two great crises that I see in the world economy. One is the collapse of internet security. A billion breaches last year in 2018 for the first time. The more money that's spent on internet security, the less internet security is achieved. That means a broken paradigm, a faulty architecture. The other great problem of the world economy today is the collapse of money. Money is no longer a measuring stick. It's no longer a source of knowledge. It's become an instrument of government power. And today, currency trading, the biggest industry of the world economy today is currency trading. $5.1 trillion a day, 25 times all global GDP, roughly, 73 times all trade in goods and services, and it doesn't even arrive at currency values that prevent trade wars, that allow exchanges without um, massive hedging activities. When people talk about the waste of Bitcoin mining, uh, they never talk about the waste of $5.1 trillion a day of currency trading and the huge energy costs of that that nobody's even bothered to measure. Eric, I believe I believe something like this came up on Twitter, and I, I, I think like Milton Friedman's relative chimed in on this one. Do you remember what that thread was all about? Oh, yeah. Uh, Patrick Friedman, his grandson, uh, you should meet it sometime, George, if you haven't yet. He was saying that that isn't the real number. That's an inflated measure of, of the actual number that's being moved around because it, it's all abstract or something. I, I don't have the exact critique. This is the, the number provided by the Bank of International Settlements, and you can compare it with previous numbers. It's a relative number. You can uh, uh, say that much of it is duplicative or... Much of it is insignificant, but that doesn't mean that the trades don't actually happen and the hedges don't act, aren't actually contracted, negotiated, and the energy expended. The idea that money is uh, merely a function of the market leaves no source of measurement for market activities. A measuring stick can't be part of what it measures. And this is, was Milton Friedman's great error. And uh, 
toward the end of his life, he uh, kind of recognized that it had been an error. In one of his last interviews, he said, in the future, I wouldn't, wouldn't stress the money supply and the control of the money supply so much as I once did. The fact is, uh, Milton Friedman, who was a wonderful man, and I debated him at great length at various times during trips in China, and I lost every debate. <laughs> Milton Friedman never lost a debate, but I believe that he was wrong, and he's demonstrably wrong. He said that with uh, global floating currencies, you wouldn't have to have hedging of transactions anymore, and uh, Governments wouldn't have to have big reserves in order to um, maintain their positions. And the fact is that uh, reserves are bigger now than ever, and hedging functions have become an ever larger part of the world economy. And the morbid siege of financialization that has the more uh, finance we generate, the less economic growth we achieve, and the more trade breaks down into stupid trade wars, and the more our internet economy produces all kinds of ridiculous suspicions and and paranoia like uh, the Chinese and U.S. are currently of showing over Huawei. Uh, telecom equipment, the world's leading telecom equipment company. Everybody's suspicious of everybody because internet architecture is totally a porous pyramid and uh, endlessly hacked. So was, we've been talking sort of in the abstract in terms of, you know, wealth is knowledge, uh, growth is learning, you know, money is time, sort of, you know, sharing sort of information theory view of economics. Let's get a bit concrete in terms of uh, what are the practical implications of how uh, the economy, uh, the you know, role of government in the economy, of, of, of what you would change based on uh, this theory of the world versus, versus the current paradigm? What are the biggest proposals or changes based on that view? Well, I, th- I think that we uh, desperately need a real money system. And I think that this will spring from the cryptocurrency world. And I, I believe that many crypto entrepreneurs are currently developing monies that actually do mimic gold, unlike Bitcoin, which is based on a steadily diminishing resource. So I think that that a key point is a return to real money based on real scarcity and thus based on that uh, translates into a measuring stick. Uh, I think that the problem with Bitcoin is it's because it's so restricted in the total amount that can be emitted uh, that uh, Bitcoin is is going to be necessarily very volatile and unpredictable and thus a good speculative vessel and many investors enjoy its speculative gyrations, but it can't be a measuring stick like gold was for centuries. And and I think we need a digital measuring stick like gold. We also have to understand that efforts to guarantee growth uh, actually prohibit growth because growth is learning. And learning 
uh, cannot finding out new things cannot be accomplished through a exercise of power and government guarantees and government subsidies and government impositions. And so this necessarily means that in the internet, we have a more austere model like Blockstack provides. And in government, we have a more austere model that understands that entrepreneurial creativity is critical to economic growth. And the, the other thing we have to understand is the finance, is that big banks are not an instrument of capitalism. Big banks have essentially been nationalized by central banks and governments. Uh, so they, they pretend to be private enterprises, but they aren't. They're part of this morbid financialization whereby banking absorb some 40% of government profits from time to time. And uh, this is preposterous. It's not as if uh, banking has uh, achieved some huge new contribution to economic growth. Economic growth has been has steadily slowed as banks have grown bigger as a part of global GDP. So I, I believe that we need to return to real money and a real security architecture for the internet. And I think that uh, uh, the black stack model can achieve both these goals. What is the ideal role and, uh, and purpose of the, uh, and scope of the financial sector? It's, it's to finance entrepreneurship, to finance uh, working capital, to, to actually aid businesses, not to... Sh- shuffle money back and forth and gain uh, arbitrage uh, because money is uh, inaccurately measuring uh, values all over the world. The more inaccurate and volatile is money, the more opportunities for this proprietary trading that banks perform around the world. Banks less and less finance actual enterprise. More and more, they just finance uh, these buybacks of stocks, which represent virtually all the appreciation of the stock market over the last five or six years. Has all been uh, big companies buying back their own stock with uh, loans effectively from the government at near zero interest rates. So 80, I I don't know exactly what the number is, but 80 to 90% of all purchases of shares now are by corporations rather than by individual investors or or actual entrepreneurs. Is a world in which uh, people were allowed to equity invest in other people? So for example, instead of taking out uh, a loan to go to college, you know, you could raise money from the crowd directly for a proportion of your income in the future, or you could pool money with you and your 10 friends, and or you could bet on certain people succeeding or not succeeding or buy baskets of, uh, of shares uh, in, in people's potential upside. Uh, in some sense, that's sort of a hyper-financialization, but in other sense, it's sort of a, you know, further aligning of equity and incentives and promoting, um, you know, encouraging more people to raise money or enabling them. Is, is that a future in which you'd be excited about or... Or lament. I think I think many of those ideas are very attractive, and and they as long as uh, they don't uh, demand guarantees 
I mean, the, the student loan program was not a loan program because it was guaranteed. The banks didn't have to scrutinize the real collateral or real promise of the students to whom they awarded loans. Uh, they knew that this whole program was guaranteed. Thus, it, it almost prohibited learning. It, it, it's not a guaranteed loan program. Is not a loan program. It's a guarantee program. Learning, learning, learning in the sense of the banks uh, issuing money, not in the sense of kids going to college, right? It, it, the crucial thing is that these various projects be allowed to fail. Uh, otherwise, they just grow like uh, the administrative state, bigger and bigger every year. And consume more and more of the world's resources with less and less yield for the actual people of the of the countries of the world. Yeah, you, uh, you know, finance. I'm curious to talk about government. You you mentioned you know in your book that government should be sort of a low entropy carry that a lot you know enables sort of the, the high entropy you know entrepreneurship to to flourish. Now, others, some of written like Bill Janeway talks about the intersection of you know entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, financial markets and government and, and, and him and others have claimed that beyond being a low entropy carrier, government was actually, you know, very involved in sort of the, the rise of the internet um, and sort of, the, you know, the long-term R&D projects that can enable by, by being able to invest in the, for the long-term. Do you, do you think there is an active role for, for government in investing in long-term R&D projects or do you think that was overstated in, in the rise of the internet or, or an anomalous in somehow? Well, I think that uh, governments do do valuable research and development, and uh, they do it when they uh, don't try to impose the results on the various projects that they support. And uh, back in, I don't agree with the the internet didn't take off uh, just as the uh, semiconductor industry didn't take off till after it broke loose of, from the government laboratories and became an entrepreneurial efflorescence. You have to accept the world as it is and see how, how it can be improved. You, you can't, uh, I'm not a libertarian. I don't believe that uh, all governments can be abolished. I think that government was a great invention and it uh, is crucial for all sorts of functions. But these, these should be low entropy carriers, that is predictable carriers that allow uh, creativity to flourish. They shouldn't uh, be manipulable carriers that stifle creativity by removing the measuring stick. It's as if you, uh, if you didn't like the, if things took too long to complete, uh, you change the hour. Uh, you expand the minute. You uh, uh, all this effort to manipulate money that we see across the world is really an effort to manipulate time and to escape the real scarcity of time that regulates all our lives and fortunes. You, you mentioned that economic growth is learning, but what do you think about the the you know sort of behaviors in society that don't directly relate to economic growth, but do it in the long term. So, you know, uh, raising kids, for example, or, you know, science that then leads to innovation later on, 
or even even you, you know, write, writing a book. Well, if you write a book, you make money for it, but you don't capture, you know, if people uh, take your ideas and then start, you know, mega businesses on top of that. What do you think about the sort of, when there's a strong contrast between value created and, and no value capture uh, on top of that, how do we thus then incentivize people to create that value if, if they don't capture it? Well, the low entropy carriers assume family, morality, uh, religion, really, is uh, a major low entropy, low entropy carrier. These confer regularities that allow you to uh, launch a creative civilization. So I, I support low entropy carriers. Those are the conservative themes that enable high entropy creations, which are the radical innovations that change the world. This insight years ago was what allowed me to predict that all the information of the world would ultimately migrate to the electromagnetic spectrum, because the electromagnetic spectrum is what allows you to differentiate the carrier from the message at the other end of the transmission. The electromagnetic spectrum is guaranteed by the basic constant of the universe, the speed of light. And uh, because of that, you can always differentiate the message from the noise at the other end. You, you subtract the uh, electromagnetic signal to find the message as we're doing today across, across the internet. Yeah, I kind of, you know, working at Blockstack here, I kind of wrestle with what things to keep as constants and, and encourage the community to get behind these things as constants and what things to sort of leave to the commons and allow them to evolve in their own way. I'm curious to know, you know, given that the kind of blockchain uh, architecture is one with a kind of low entropy carrier, depending on how sort of mature the blockchain is, in, in the case of Bitcoin, that's a very low entropy carrier, very reliable as you work your way up the stack, you have this like application layer and you can have different sets of governance operating on both the blockchain layer and on the application layer and even more abstractly on, you know, marketing on, on like the marketing, marketing side of things, let's say. Have you given any thought to what elements will need to remain low entropy in this kind of full stack to ensure that we have a, a very prosperous, highly creative sort of civilization being built on it? Well, I, th I think Blockstack did a good job in defining identity as an absolutely fundamental factor in any uh, low entropy carrier. Naming names, the process of storing particular pointers to uh, distant memory sites. Uh, that is uh, appropriate for the blockchain, but incorporating all the memories in the blockchain is uh, not scalable. So it seems to me that uh, Blockstack really has uh, defined a set of crucial services that need to be intrinsic in the blockchain and that enable uh, creative activities beyond it. And, and I think that uh, defining money is another crucial function. The defining money thing is difficult if you look through your lens of essentially time, time is money, in a sense. If you're trying to mimic gold, that can be difficult for its own reasons. But if you're trying to sort of link 
gold, the thing that exists in this meat space, you sort of need to rely on an oracle. So, and so in, in my estimate, the sort of maybe one of the best ways uh, is to try to create like a synthetic digital version that doesn't um, become a measuring stick measuring itself a- after any amount of time, one that's reliable for centuries. You know, should, should we continue to exist that far out into the future? Yeah, I, th- I think that you're stating the problem. You know, people have, uh, you know, time prices. Uh, Julian Simon, I don't know whether you know about him, but he wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource decades ago um, and made a famous bet with Paul Ehrlich, who said everything, all our resources were running out. The prices would spike and there'd be vast scarcities afflicting the world in the 1980s. And Julian Simon bet against Ehrlich and said that uh, Ehrlich could name any five resources he wanted and Simon would would be willing to bet that they would decline in price over the subsequent 10 years. And Simon was taking a stupid bet by most standards because uh, at the time everybody believed that the Club of Rome had just ordained that all resources were diminishing on earth and uh, prices would all be going up. And so Ehrlich could only lose all his money if the prices went to zero, which was extremely unlikely. Well, uh, Simon was risking his entire fortune because uh, prices could go up any amount. In fact, prices went down 59% or something of that ilk. And uh, Simon had to write Ehrlich a check and did. And this was... And people have since uh, said that Simon would have lost if the timing had been wrong. And, and that's true. But uh, nonetheless, over the centuries, the real prices of commodities have steadily dropped and they continue to drop, measured by time prices. And the time prices are how much time it takes for an average worker to earn the money to purchase a specific amount of the particular commodity. And uh, time prices are, remain the best way of comparing different eras to one another. Time is the fundamental scarcity, and uh, all prices really are ultimately measured in time, even if people don't uh, acknowledge what they're actually measuring and try to falsify time and escape from time and, and uh, overcome time with manipulative interest rates and treating money as power rather than knowledge. What do you think are the biggest problems when people don't understand that money is time? Like what are we trying to avoid by, by making sure that people understand that? Well, just the, the global slowdown of the economy. And the outbreak of trade wars all across the economy. You know, Trump ran for president on NAFTA. And uh, he ascribed to NAFTA, as most many economists did, the rise in imports from 
Mexico and the transfer of manufacturing plants to Mexico, as if the NAFTA agreement was what resulted in this phenomenon. Meanwhile, the price of the peso dropped 87% in five or six years. It was the collapse of the peso in this world of floating currencies that uh, resulted in all the disruption of trade. And today, we now have a stupid effort to revive a Cold War with China on the basis of paranoid fears of Internet hacks and uh, fears of the manipulation of currencies. And this is all around the world. We're having a breakdown of trade. We're having a breakdown of Internet security. We're having a stagnation of growth. It's not because human creativity has suddenly been exhausted or that innovations are no longer possible. It's because money has disappeared as a gauge to guide entrepreneurial activity and to assure values across time, which is measured by interest rates and currency values, and across, and across space, which isn't measured by currency values. And when these values are no longer reliable, you get all these suspicions and trade wars and monetary beggar thy neighbor policies. It's, it's uh, just as when, when the Internet security collapses, everybody fears uh, hacks and manipulations and exploitations and backdoors and surveillance and all these uh, fears that are currently convulsing our politics and leading the world toward new and unnecessary and fruitless hostilities. Yeah, the you know some people talk about markets as sort of a you know more of a social communal phenomenon. There there is sort of this trend among economists right now where they're sort of you know, emphasizing the the importance of community ties of uh, and you know obviously all this like tribalism raging. Uh, how do you sort of think about the importance of community or maybe the role religion used to play and how we think about measuring it in, in society and, and making sure that it's healthy and happy. Yeah. Well, I, I believe that uh, we're, that there's the great new religion of materialism. Really it's a flat universe theory where conscious and free human beings deny their consciousness and freedom and depict themselves as pure functions of, material fluctuations. I think it's it's a kind of human nihilism that is very destructive and results in all a reduction to tribalism and new cold wars and conflicts. And I, I just think that uh, this is a, a great tragedy of our time, a collapse of the low entropy carriers of our civilization. You know, Robert Wright has this idea uh, or this book called Non-Zero, uh, which talks about sort of basically he sees history as sort of a, the increase in non-zero sum behavior, which is our fates become more and more interlinked and intertwined. And that tends to be a good thing over time. 
if it, you know, at some point it brings us closer and closer together, which means perhaps we'll have more conflict, but then we create, whether it's governing bodies or, or markets or other systems that realize that we're sort of in either win-win or lose-lose situations that are, that our fates are, are, are intertwined. Do you share this version of, of history? Yes. I thought, uh, I liked the right, rights book. I thought it was, um, uh very insightful, and his focus on win-win, non-zero-sum economics was absolutely on target. And I think that when we start seeing the economy as a zero-sum struggle, uh, then uh, all the tribalism and we-they conflicts uh, emerge. I think that was an excellent book. What does that mean for the people who get left behind? And obviously, you know, uh, capitalism continues to bring overall aggregate benefits, but, but some get left behind in the short term and, and timelines do matter. How do you recommend that we best address the, the, the issues that stem from that? Well, the key thing is not to destroy the dignity and futures of the people you support. We have a, a welfare state that essentially requires you to qualify for it by failure. An investment system where only people who have already succeeded are really allowed to invest. Security regulation system that really enforces a rule that uh, you can't invest in anything you know about. This is what I call the outsider trading scandal. All these uh, government policies tend to reduce opportunities across the economy and thus make poor people permanently poor. You know, the worst thing that can happen to you is if you're uh, on welfare is that you marry your boyfriend. Uh, then you become, uh, no, you lose all your uh, support for your children and you uh, face uh, all sorts of uh, welfare bureaucracy, and it's it's a really deadly effort. The result of this, having such a bureaucratic welfare system, is that the real uh, welfare system has become the homeless programs. Because uh, while it's difficult to qualify for aid for families with dependent children and all the uh, programs that derive from it and surround it, anybody can figure out how to be homeless. So this has been the default welfare program for the country, and it's made it's making our cities increasingly unlivable. Hmm. Presumably people don't want to become homeless, and, and presumably – some sort of social safety net is is advisable. Yeah. I've written at great length about safety nets in several books earlier in my career, and I believe in safety nets. I just have observed that the safety nets have become gigantic bureaucracies that now consume trillions of dollars a year while effectively reducing people to penury and homelessness. There's something wrong with the system. It's a broken paradigm, just like an internet architecture that affords billions of breaches of data every year and uh, a world monetary system that, as it expands, 
increasingly suffocates world economic growth and creates new zero-sum systems where people contemplate new outbreaks of conflict and war. Sure. I, I think like, I think these, these, these systems are, are introduced in a very well-meaning way. And, and I, I think it's very hard to argue that a lot of these don't come under abuse to a large extent. Part of me wonders if this is just a part of like an ever, an, like an ongoing cycle between, uh, between, you know, essentially common sense and, and compassion and um, bureaucracy and uh, tragedy of the commons, essentially. It's not clear to me exactly beyond great education, sound money, and, and common sense that these things are, these cycles are really, really avoidable. A writer named Philip Howard has just has written a whole series of books about the death of common sense. And uh, he shows how bureaucracy, by trying to guarantee outcomes, kind of eclipses common sense. The actual bureaucrats uh, lose all their power because uh, the rules are micromanaged their behavior and uh, and thus stultify it because uh, just as uh, the economy is a great machine, ultimately stops creative growth. So does uh, bureaucracy is a great machine uh, for common sense toward individual solutions that are actually appropriate to specific circumstances. Philip Howard's new book, I, I think it's called Re- Restore Common Sense. I'm not sure. I've forgotten its exact title. It may be Try Common Sense. But anyway, it's an excellent book. He's a Democrat who understands that the current uh, governmental model has broken down and that it no longer produces favorable outcomes and including economic growth. Zooming out a little bit, um, you know, there's been this constant push and pull, you know, over time in economies and governments between centralization and decentralization. And uh, Yuval Harari has this thesis that, uh, you know, the last, you know, 50 years or so, uh, what was both, uh, ethical was also the most efficient, which was de- decentral, de- you know, more and more decentralizing over time because no central authority could have all that inf- the right information about prices, et cetera. But, um, that over time, uh, especially as AI gets stronger, and I know you're sort of dubious, Jordan, how, you know, we, we've, you know, you've all and other people consider AI, uh, that centralized powers will have more, uh, information, you know, uh, the platforms will understand us better than, than we know ourselves is, is his thesis. But putting that aside, is is it self-evident to you that all, all sort of history t- tends towards decentralizing over time, whether it's uh, economic systems or or governments? Yes, I've been studying connect homes, and um, connect homes are uh, are the way that uh, biologists, neurobiologists, measure the connectivity of human brains, and uh, this really struck me because I've been measuring connectivity of the internet for decades. And it's just recently that the internet has passed a zettabyte of connect home. All the various memories connected to the internet now are some small number of zettabytes. And I was surprised and, uh, but, uh, 
encouraged to discover that the human connectome, the connectome of one human brain, takes more than a zettabyte to map. In other words, one human brain has the complexity of connectivity that the entire global internet has. And yet one human brain functions on on between 12 and 14 watts of energy, while the global internet takes billions of times more energy to function. It just strikes me how quixotic it is to believe that no matter how big the global internet computational capability grows, that it can actually outperform billions of decentralized human brains voluntarily cooperating to uh, create new value and uh, pursue new learning. Probably depends on which way you slice it, though, right? No, I don't think so. I think that that efforts to to um, supplant human brains with uh, computers are uh, to supplant them. That is not to augment them. Oh, or sure, to sure. Them. I see. I see. It's, it's uh, is futile and uh, self-destructive. Uh, the ultimate intelligent of the universe is the human consciousness reflecting i believe the consciousness of their creator but that's but the effective intelligence that all uh, computer intelligence depends upon is individual human minds each one with zettabytes of capability zettabyte Zettabyte is 10 to the so, 21st. So, so, it's a, so you're, you're reflecting out to the, to the future, do you, do you envision a world that has you know, global governance or governing bodies trying to help uh, you know, us solve our global problems, like you know, climate change, which I understood you have sort of different views on, but you know, maybe the rise of AI or, or, or you know, nuclear proliferation, et cetera, or do you envision, envision more of a fragmentation of increasingly smaller and, and decentralized independent city states like, how do you envision sort of on a uh, that evolving the low entropy carriers are um, increasingly global as we have a global economy and uh, their test is how well they endow the win-win exchanges and creative and creations of individual humans and small teams of humans launching new value into the world. And that's, uh, it's, we need low entropy carriers, uh, governmental organizations, police powers uh, to deal with uh, threats of violence that become ever more powerful as technology advances. And uh, we need the creation of defensive technologies to neutralize uh, the ever-increasing powers of offensive technologies. There, it's, and I, I believe that, that human beings freed to pursue their own uh, visions and possibilities uh, can create a benign world for other human beings that uh, uh, as even Stephen Pinker uh, sees 
Uh, the golden rule is a crucial proposition that all humans should recognize. Yeah, the golden rule is 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 nice in theory, um, but when you have it, the thing that concerns me is when I look at technology from like 1940s. I think about or like a refrigerator getting cheaper and better, computers getting cheaper and better, and I also think about things like atom bombs getting cheaper and more easily readily available and like um, biosim attacks getting cheaper and more easy to arc to sort of synthesize an architect. My concern for the past few years has been as these technologies become more readily available to kind of pretty much anyone, how do you stop the sort of lone nihilist from pushing the button and kind of golden rule just kind of flies out the window in that case. And you you sort of end up with really, well, this is one re I think some of these technologies are just going to be dictate uh, contrary to technologies that uh, can actually identify people who are threatening uh, to wreak major damage on the rest of us. Uh, I don't, I don't believe that uh, the current stress on privacy, I, I don't fear the panopticon particularly. Uh, this idea that I think there's a great vanity among a lot of, lot of people who imagine that governments deeply care about what they're doing, their foibles and trivial violations. And, and the extent that I, I think it's ridiculous what we're doing in airports with uh, TSA, for example, when uh, uh, it's increasingly possible to recognize faces and to measure uh, the contents of, fathom the contents of boxes and containers, and all this technology will make possible us to walk through airports as freely as it's actually quicker to get through an airport in Israel than it is in the United States. And the Israelis are really in the front line here. They got millions of people trying to blow them off the face of the map. Yet they've got a security system at their airports that way outperforms ours. And I think uh, new technologies are our only answer to uh, the kinds of threats that you described. And, and I think that it's not true that technology is a threat to privacy. I was brought up when, uh, of old technologies and there were, and a couple operators heard all our telephone calls and, uh, rumors spread through small towns and, and a few decades before every now and then they burned a witch and uh, there was no response. There was no possible response to prove that you had not perpetrated the acts that were speculatively ascribed to you. I think one of the great contributions of cryptocurrencies is attestation, a timestamped record of your transactional behavior allows you to document to predatory corporations or tax authorities or governmental investigators just what you, in fact, did do. And I think uh, 
that's one of the great contributions of cryptocurrencies, not just anonymity relative to the ridiculous charade of passwords and usernames uh, for each of your various um, internet engagements. Rather, you can actually prove your behavior, prove that you're innocent. That is, uh, that's the real desirable goal. Yeah, my fear is the potential for like a sort of 19... 19- 1941 German uh, style uh, national, like sort of nationalist uprising, like a real, a real one where people seek sort of violent sort of uh, methods to, to accomplish their goals. And their, um, their person is, is, is in, is in the, is in the chair to make those, those executive decisions in that state, you know, like, yeah, exactly. I fear, I fear like yeah, you know, like what 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 would the Jews have done back in 1941 Germany if they had been under a sort of surveillance state in Germany? Well, the what uh, all this violence expressed was a collapse of the global economy and the destruction of money and uh, in the previous era in Weimar Germany uh, we had. The example, the total dissolution of all savings. Everybody in Germany lost their savings in the 1920s who didn't flee or hide gold or something. And so the whole world economy was in a Great Depression because of a trade war launched in the early 1930s and then the destruction of the value of money by confiscating all the gold, even in the United States. Uh, I just I think that uh, that it really is important that the world economy work in a win-win way, as uh, Robert Wright envisaged. Uh, he pointed the crucial role of a belief that uh, the success of other people is also your own success. It uh, expands your market. It it. Lifts your opportunities, and this win-win property of capitalism is under is undermined when security breaks down on all the communication systems, and money breaks down in all the trading systems. There's no oracle. There's no outside source uh, and reliable standard of value. And this means all value becomes contested. And that means huge new frictions emerge in the world economy and economic growth uh, slowly grinds to a halt as it's currently doing today. So given you, we want government to be a low entropy carrier, would you be perhaps against the, the charter city movement, which is trying to create sort of, you know, competitive governments and that's you know if there's creative destruction in, in governance there'll be a lot of sort of experimentation and high entropy among you know the government sector i'm for all kinds of experimentation that might halt the current rise of administrative states around the world that are slowly stifling human creativity and growth i don't think charter cities are the ultimate solution but Charter cities, to the extent they can, in fact, be engineered successfully, will provide examples of successful policy and uh, that other governments can imitate. And uh, I think there are 
there are lots of possibilities. If you affirm human freedom rather than adopt a determinist model of uh, human servitude. Yeah. The, going back to this idea of um, you know, centralization versus decentralization, I, I think the broader question, you know, in general, you know, Robert Wright does believe that sort of history has, I don't know if you say, would say has a purpose, but definitely has, has, has patterns and, and has a, a way in which it's moving. I'm not sure if you you know, subscribe to that, but going back to sort of, you know, I was asking about uh, governments and whether they will sort of concentrate or, or disperse over time. And I think another way of asking that might be around language, you know, language and currency. Right now we have many languages, many currencies around the world. In the next, you know, 20 years, 50 years, do you imagine that language uh, or currencies will be more concentrated, that it'll be more winner-take-all, or that there'll be more dispersed, there'll be, you know, many, many hundreds of, uh, of, of currencies and languages all, all playing these sort of micro-languages and micro-currencies, or, or might there be some combination, some back and forth between centralization and decentralization and maybe a barbell, uh, similar to how we've seen in the last century where there's been sort of the rise well, the of you know, socialism followed by the rise of capitalism you know, all, over, all over the world. Sort of after back the and Industrial forth. Revolution was a single global money. Essentially, all money was translated into gold. You had a lot of so-called currencies, but uh, their ultimate uh, valuation was rooted in a gold standard pretty much as defined by Isaac Newton. So I think that money is intrinsically unitary. It, it, it's, it's like the second. We aren't going to have all sorts of different timing systems all over the world that aren't interoperable. Similarly, we will have a single monetary system ar- around the world to enable international trade and commerce. And that is... Uh, Languages, I think there are probably too many languages. This just uh, intuitive judgment. I think there's too much effort to preserve languages that haven't really succeeded. So I think there'll be fewer languages, and there will be a tendency for a few languages to prevail. They are, languages are low-entropy carriers, I think. Right. I'm sure you're familiar with David Graeber's idea uh, or uh, ideas around debt. Uh, can you sort of say where you stand on, on those ideas and, and how you would you would articulate them? Like where, where you disagree with him? Well, I did um, read his book a few years back. I found it was a Marxist book ultimately, and uh, I didn't agree with it. But the idea that government debt is a disease now reaching close to $250 trillion around the world, while world economic growth declines per dollar of debt in an almost linear way. Uh, I think that, that 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 model has failed. It's a broken paradigm, and it doesn't have any... He wants to blame it on capitalism. I think it has nothing to do with capitalism. It has to do with government takeovers of the global banks and monetary systems. And as Friedrich Hayek said, uh, the root and source of all economic evil or monetary evil is the government control and manipulation of money. That's Hayek's 
who really invented information theory economics as well and his theory of knowledge. And uh, the pricing system is chiefly an instantaneous transmission belt for economic information. I think that uh, that uh, that insight is, cor- is, is correct, Hayek's view. Where do you find yourself uh, disagreeing with 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 Hayek or, or Mises or some of the other most more prominent Austrians, you know, within your your camp, I, I don't dis, disagree with them. I, I think I think my view of uh, money as time is better than uh, the various commodity ideas of money that uh, the Austrians adopted from time to time. I think that. Uh, Money is not a commodity, and uh, the a measuring stick can't be part of what it measures. And money is a commodity implies money measuring itself. In the old flaw of good, the Gödel unveiled for all logical systems, they're all dependent on oracles beyond themselves, on uh, propositions that can't be proven within the system itself and and what's the implication of uh like how did they see the world differently by seeing money as a commodity what did that imply whether it implied model they they had more complicated views of money uh than were necessary and they sort of assumed the performance of gold but didn't identify the source of its its stability and reliability and i think the source of it was that the money it took to extract gold uh, changed very little over the uh, centuries compared to the value of currencies. So gold, and also all existing gold, uh, didn't corrode or erode so that uh, the supply of gold never diminished. It always increased. What would need to be true for you to think that the Federal Reserve is doing a good job or serves a core purpose and, and should exist and flourish. The only role that the, the key, key role of the Fed is, you know, an ultimate lender of last resort. That's what it, it does. You know, in, in uh, liquidity crises that uh, emerge from time to time due to the panics and hysterias and misconceptions and, that uh, sweep through human panics and manias and crises. Uh, the Fed and central banks can afford that role as a uh, lender of last resort. Uh, when they start manipulating mem- money itself and changing the value of money in order to accommodate politicians and their cronies, uh, you get this uh, crony capitalism that's almost as bad as socialism. And, and many, uh, especially Austrian economics, uh, economists, believe that the Fed shouldn't even serve that role of lender of, of last resort. So w- what do they believe differently from what you believe, or what, what sort of different fundamental solutions do you have? They're just, they're, they're idealistic li- libertarians. And uh, I believe that, uh, that, it's unlikely that the world can enter a halcyon heaven where crises and disturbances and eruptions of hostility and depressions and can't 
occasionally happen in various markets. And I think that uh, a lender of last resort is an appropriate insurance for these violations of libertarian peace and harmony. Throughout this episode, we've talked about, you know, you talk about the importance of low entry carriers, also uh, talked about, you know, uh, not reducing human dignity. The extent that some of these are somewhat subjective, specifically around low entropy carriers, how have you evolved over time your assessment of, of what are or aren't low entropy carriers? You know, companies uh, develop products uh, through learning curves. You know, learning curves are evident all across all economies. They're the most thoroughly documented proposition in business consultancies. Uh, Bain and Company, Boston Consulting Group, all these groups have documented learning curves everywhere. And learning curves end up, uh, you know, they, they, they mean that uh, costs drop by between 20 and 30% with every doubling of total units sold. Obviously, units eventually approach an asymptote, and uh, the learning tends to stop. Under those circumstances, often a particular learning curve will end up as a low entropy carrier for new learning curves. The various protocols of the internet served as low entropy carriers until uh, they got hacked and distorted and abused and and gave way to this new system of of walled gardens and uh, porous pyramids where all the money and data and power rise to the top. So low entropy carriers are are low entropy. They aren't zero entropy. They probably will change as time passes and new ones need to uh, replace them. And and that is uh, what we're undergoing today. It may be that an old gold standard, just like the old, the old gold standard, is not appropriate in this new era with uh, global internet and new cryptocurrency innovations and and fiber optic communications the speed of light and 5g networks that give ubiquitous broadband and there are all sorts of uh, new developments uh geosynchronous survey of the world planetary features and that allow location to be accessible everywhere. I mean, there are just so many changes that I find it hard to believe that we won't, that some new form of money that uh, reflects the ultimate scarcity of time that uh, governs all economic activity will not emerge from this current efflorescence of creativity that Blackstack is uh, representing. And I hope Blackstack can prevail over its uh, learning process and, uh, you know, ultimately be a low entropy carrier of its own. George, you were in um, China for a few weeks and I found out that uh, your new book had been pretty popular out there. I was wondering two things, kind of, what do you attribute like your book's acclaim out in China 
to? And also, <clears throat> what things have you noticed for your recent visits compared to your sort of past visits? And has any anything about the country itself, the technologists, and the sort of government um, changed change your mind or uh, uh, impacted your worldview? China is and the U.S. are a fascinating contrast. I mean, China has this um, authoritarian government that nonetheless is avidly promoting entrepreneurial creativity. Uh, They have three times more initial public offerings than we do, maybe even more than that. Uh, They now have passed us in venture capital outlays 60% of their kids study engineering. And all my time in uh, China, I never met a communist. That that may reflect a certain obtuseness on my part. Uh, But uh, in the United States, I meet communists all the time. And so... So it's it's an ironic situation where the government of China is actually smaller as a share of its GDP by 40% or so than the government of the United States. Uh, the private sector in China has grown so much faster than those big Leviathan public companies that they favored that uh, the government, it steadily declines in its way in China. Well, in the United States, the government steadily expands its way. So there, it's, it's, there are lots of ironies. Huawei is a perfect irony because Huawei was really the first big successful private company in China. It, uh, before they had any stock markets or any kind of, uh, equity systems. Uh, Huawei in the late eighties, a launch. I'm waiting for the George Kennedy that was private and it challenged all the public telecom equipment companies of China and prevailed not only against all the public telecom companies of China, but also all the other enterprise or governmental telecom companies of China, but also prevailed over all the other telecom equipment companies in the world. It's, it's now number one in the world in telecom equipment. It's a great capitalist story led by Ren Zhenfei, who is a capitalist rotor of China and a supply sider who fervently endorses lower tax rates as yielding more revenues. And as, you know, it's a real capitalist uh, inspirational leader. And somehow we're trying to stop Huawei. Huawei is a great triumph of American policy from the time Nixon and Kissinger went and opened up the doors to China. Yeah. Perhaps in, uh, in, in closing here, winding down, uh, George, what's, uh, what's your next book going to be about? Or what are your next, uh, next three books uh, going, going to be about? Well, I have a book about Carver Mead, who's uh, been my great guide. He's an engineer and physicist at uh, Caltech who uh, was involved in starting some 30 companies in uh, Silicon Valley. He was the man who did the research for Gordon Moore behind Moore's Law, and then he named Moore's Law. So Carver is a great figure of Silicon Valley, and I've I've been writing a biography of his. 
and uh, he has a he has a number of great contrarian insights that may lead to other books. A life after silicon. This whole idea that uh, artificial intelligence is going to emerge from uh, silicon, I think, is an illusion. That um, our brains are made of carbon, and uh, carbon is a much more adaptable element than silicon is. To hundreds of thousands more compounds and complexities that that afford the possibility of new creativity on the frontiers of the information economy. I'm I'm uh, I'm interested in connectomes. I may write a book about connectomes at some sort some point. I'm 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 interested in biotech as well as uh information technology and I think they both are expressions of the ever more rich uh, information theory that I think subsumes many of our other disciplines, including economics. I've got ownership in a, a three companies run by Matt Schultz, started by Matt Schultz, who is uh, a great biotech entrepreneur who started in software and launched his first company as a software program for trucking and uh, now has companies that are addressing cancer and wellness as well as programmable resistance to, to diseases. While following his investment of much of his money from his uh, software company and a couple of prophetic patents registered by David Baltimore, who was the Nobel laureate biologist who became president of Caltech. So there's a lot going on out there. I like Peter Thiel's zero to one. I'm looking for zero to one opportunities. Awesome. Well, thanks for uh, joining us. This is really, uh, really engaging conversation. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. Thanks both Eric and George for joining the podcast. I'll see you guys around next time. Thanks so much, Patrick. Thanks so much, George. Thank you, Eric and Patrick. Hope to see you soon one of these days. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 